Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Why don't you join me in prayer here? Father, that song is our prayer, Lord, that you would genuinely cause our hearts to be changed and that this truth would impact us. And thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to engage it. And uh, Lord, may it cause us to be filled with your love and that your glory would be made known uh, through the ages. Thank you, God, for this moment. May we genuinely cherish this gift. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I would ask you to return in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are picking up our study of Acts. My plan was to preach this sermon last week. God's plan was to allow me to miss the snowstorm here. So, unfortunately, I could not bring some warmer weather back with me. But uh, I am glad for Jeff being able to jump in at the last minute on Saturday, calling him, saying, hey, brother, what are you doing tomorrow? (laughs) I know what you're doing. You're preaching. So it was good. I appreciate him stepping in at the last minute. And and I know many of you were kind of trapped out in the cold as well, so in um, the snow and the ice, and I'm glad God protected us all, and that today we get to study this passage here in Acts 15. We are studying through the book of Acts, and uh, if this is your first Sunday, we've been marching through this book thought by thought, and we've left off here in a, in a unique section. Jim just read it for us, and, and, and just to kind of set the table of where we've been in this study... Um, this particular section of Acts is a pretty profound moment in the life of the church. The gospel has gone out and Gentiles have gotten saved. And what that means is that people are coming into the church that have pretty wild backgrounds. And they don't follow a lot of the customs that the, that the Jews had followed, especially when it comes to dietary laws and, and, and the way that they conduct their daily life and the way their family is structured. And, and there's all kinds of uh, differences there. And as the Gentiles come in, they're not observing any of these practices that the Jews had had, and and it was creating division. And so some men had come and said, hey, listen, Gentiles, yeah, it's true, Jesus died for you, but here's the reality. If you don't submit to this law, this Old Testament law, and all of the customs and rules that go with the law, you're not saved. Created a stir and a conflict, and a pretty big conflict, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, so much so that it even drew Peter into the conflict and started getting Barnabas pulled into this conflict. And, and so suddenly, this thing is so big that a council is called upon. The elders in Jerusalem meet, and they grab the elders and the apostles all meet in Jerusalem to decide what are you going to do with the laws of the Old Testament? Does the Gentile have to follow those laws to be saved? And so they meet and they have a council and they decide that no, you are saved by faith, but that the Gentiles do have to honor the background of the Jews and they've got to be sensitive to them. And so so they're saved by grace through faith, but they're saved to love and serve their fellow Jews. And so they need to be sensitive to the way that they act and treat them. So now they decide to write a letter and to send the letter out to the church. In Antioch, this is this whole problem began in Antioch. So now they've got to make their way up north from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they're going to send a letter. And that's what Jim read for you was the sending of this letter. Now, what's interesting about this whole experience and, and everything that took place here is that this really helps us understand some critical things in the church. 
Even today, even though we don't, in our context here in, in DeKalb County, Illinois, we don't necessarily struggle with this to the degree that they would have. But there always is a question about law and grace and, and the customs of the Bible and how do all of these things fit together? What do we do with them? And this section really helps us understand it. And so it's a, it's a good section because it teaches us something very important. It teaches us that love is the very thing that balances grace. Some people try to balance grace with law. They think, well, okay, grace is good, but if you give too much grace, then people are going to use that grace and serve themselves. And, and so what we want to do is mix a little bit of law in with the grace, and then, and then we got the good balance. But one of the things the Jerusalem Council said, it's not law that balances grace. It's grace needs to operate through love. And when grace operates through love, then you've got the perfect mixture. This engine's going to run great when grace and love measure together, work together. And that's one of the great lessons. Now, we're going to see this today. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something hopefully you'll find interesting. I find this interesting, but uh, I think you might as well. We're going to go through this letter. We're going to walk through this passage, 22 through 35, and, and I'm going to highlight what's there and, and try to unpack it for you. But then what we're going to do is we're going to then go to another book of the Bible. And the reason why we're going to go to another book of the Bible is that this event in Acts 15 is the very event that caused the writing of another book of the Bible. And this other book of the Bible that was written was written because of everything that took place, the entire tension. And what you do, whenever you read through Acts, is you have to realize that the rest of the books of the New Testaments kind of were all written as Acts was unfolding. And one of the things that helps you read Acts is to see what other books of the Bible were written at the time that these events took place. And what that does is that just sheds light on, on what you're learning. So the book of Galatians was written during the time of Acts 15. And the book of Galatians is actually Paul taking the lesson from Acts 15 and applying it to the church in Galatia. And what I'm going to do is show that to you at the end. So we'll walk through the passage, and then we're going to jump over into Galatians, and I'm going to show you how Galatians is the application. And, and what this, I think, will do will not only help you kind of put your Bible together and see how they fit, but also I think it will give you some really important truths that you can hang your hat on as far as understanding grace and love and, and the Spirit of God and all of these things that are all at play, because I think this helps us define the Christian walk. So the outline's pretty simple. You can see it there. We're going to just see the letter that was written. We're going to see it sent. We'll see what happens. And then we're going to see how this letter was applied to the church, specifically applied to the church in Galatia. Okay? And I want you to understand this simple point. Grace is never balanced by law. Grace has to operate through love. And if you understand that point, and that might seem ethereal, but when we're done here, hopefully it will will make sense to you. When you get that, then you will understand the Christian walk. You're going to understand how to raise your children. This thing has application on so many levels, from human relationships to church relationships to raising our children to every component of our life, this understanding of grace and love and how they fit together. And I want you to see it today. But first, let's begin by looking at the letter. And so what happens is the council has met They've made their decision of how they're going to respond to these people who are saying they have to follow the law to be saved. And we pick up after the council is met here in verse 22, and it says, 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Okay, so what happened? They decide that, 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 the, that the apostles and the elders and the entire church in Jerusalem that heard this whole council. So you got a church involved, you've got elders involved, you've got apostles involved, they've all heard this, and they're all in agreement that they're, gonna, that, that they're saved by grace and that they're to operate in love and they were in agreement, so they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take Paul and Barnabas, we're going to send them back to Antioch with the letter, and we're going to bring two other guys, two leaders from within the church in Jerusalem, Silas, who becomes one of Paul's traveling companions, and this guy Judas. Now, you know, if you have the name Judas, that's just like a horrible name in the New Testament, right? I mean, like, there were, that's a common name, too. You know, and so, so you notice in the New Testament that every time there's a Judas mentioned that isn't Judas the bad Judas, you get the guy's, you get his, who he's the son of, right? Judas Barsabbas, right? Just because you don't want to be Judas, right? That's like having the name Hitler, you know? It's like you want that qualified. And so, so you have Judas, not our bad Judas who's dead, but this other Judas, and his friend Silas, and these guys are leaders in the church, so now this contingency is going to go down, and they are going to present the letter. Look at 23. So here they write this letter, and he says they, they go down with the following letter. The brother, he says, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Now I'm stopping there for a minute. Because I want you to notice something, because this will help you understand the book of Galatians. These guys who came with this teaching came from Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is kind of the mothership, right? I mean, this was the first church. This is where the apostles were hanging out. This is where James was. This is where Peter was. So when these guys came out, they came out and they said, uh, greetings, we are from the church in Jerusalem. And they have this sense of, of gravitas with them. And they came and they said, as from the church in Jerusalem, we need, we need you Gentiles to know something. You're not saved unless you're circumcised. You're not saved unless you start following these laws. And people started thinking, this is the teaching of the church in Jerusalem because they were leveraging up against it. And so here they say, listen, we know these guys came out and they troubled you. Literally, the word troubled means, or I mean, uh, he says, unsettling your mind. It literally means throwing you into confusion. They're saying, we know these guys threw you into confusion because they started teaching this message of grace and law together. We knew this messed with your heads, but they weren't from us, so they're distancing themselves from them. Okay, so let's pick up the letter here in verse 25. It says that it seemed good to us, having come to one accord. That's a very important point. The entire church, elders, apostles, they are unified in this. It's good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them with you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. Okay, so now we understand what the requirements were. We're not putting any burden. You don't have to follow the law, but we are asking you to follow some customs, to honor some customs for the sake of the Jews. 
This is from the, the Spirit of God has led us in this. We are unified in this. We're not putting anything on you. We are letting you know that you only have a certain custom we're asking you to follow. And in verse 29, we have the custom. Look at it. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Simple letter. Now, you, a couple weeks ago, we looked as to why these things were here and we realized something, that when they gave these requirements out, these weren't requirements for salvation. They said they do not need to follow the law to be saved. But because there are Jews everywhere around the Roman Empire, and because these Jews have been raised in the law and they're hearing the law preached, we are asking you for the sake of the Jews, not for the sake of your salvation, to honor some customs that they have. To honor some customs. And notice these customs. What are the customs they're asked to honor? Uh, to, to abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, the first group of them there are pretty simple. What they're basically saying is that, that a, gen, a Jew would never eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. They would never eat meat that wasn't dealt with in a kosher manner. How is kosher manner? They would take the animal and slit the neck and drain the blood out of the animal to kill it because they believed blood was sacred. So they, they stayed away from blood. So they would have never done any of that. And so what they would say is, hey, if you invite a Jew over to your house, don't go to the temple, pick up some meat, and bring it there and feed it to them. You're going to seriously offend these people. They think that they are violating God and their conscience cannot handle eating this food. So please stay away from this. Now, as you read through that list, it's pretty easy to see that, right? Uh, this whole list of things, right? Sacrifice to idols from blood, from what's been strangled, right? This deals with food. And then you get this one on here from sexual immorality. And some people wonder, why is that there? It's easy, if, if that one wasn't there, to understand what they're saying. Be sensitive to the conscience of these guys and don't feed them meat sacrificed to idols because they can't handle that. But, like, isn't sexual immorality pretty obvious? Like, duh, is he saying that's just a custom that you're supposed to follow only around the Jews? So be sexually immoral when... The Jews aren't around? What are they getting at? Well, I kind of have to explain this to you because this is a little bit where our English language lets us down a bit. Um, there are several different words for immorality. Now, I'm going to keep this G-rated, okay? So you're going to have to work with me, adults, here, and you're going to have to read into some statements, okay? We're keeping this totally G-rated. Yeah, there are several different words for immorality. And uh, one word is a generic word. And one word's a very specific word. The very specific word refers to very specific violations, adultery, things like that. There's another word that's general, and it could refer to breaking any requirement that God would have in human relationships. Now, in this case, it's the general word that's used. I'm going to give you the word. I don't typically throw Greek words out because they don't really mean much to you, but this word will be a word that will be familiar to you. It's the word pornea. Okay, so we have a word that we kind of have been a derivative of that word. And it's a general word. It means anything that violates God's bounds. Which means that you need a context to understand what are the boundaries we're talking about. What are the boundaries we're talking about? If used generically, like just in general, stay away from pornea, and you mean it in a general sense, it's pretty wide. It's a pretty wide statement. 
when it's used in a specific context, the context gives us the meaning. So what is the context of this passage? The context of this passage are the laws of God. The very clear laws about meat, handling meat, you know, kosher meat, things like that. And so now the question is, what is he referring to then when he uses the word pornea? Probably, most theologians kind of agree that he's just referring to the laws regarding relationships, the marriage relationships. Okay, so I'm going to be really generic here. Uh, There's a certain law in the Old Testament, and you're going to have to, again, read into the statement. Certain laws in the Old Testament that would say that certain times a month, a man's not allowed to touch his wife. Okay, you can figure out what I mean. That, That a law is there. Gentiles wouldn't have followed that law. They wouldn't have followed that law. Gentiles would clearly have a brother and sister dating each other in the home. Jews would not have done that. There's certain rules that they had. And what they're saying is, listen, in the context, you are coming in possibly with one, two, maybe three wives in this case. We're asking you to recognize that if you sit down at the table and you're showing some kind of affection to all three of your wives, you're going to be messing with the Jews' minds. They can't handle this. We're asking you to be aware that you are coming in from a completely different worldview when it comes to husband-wife relationships. We're asking you to be sensitive to that, to be aware of that. So this is not just a statement saying, the reason why I'm making such a big point about this is that adultery is always wrong, right? This is, in, in this case, he's talking about just being sensitive to others, about meat sacrifice to idols and things like that. He's not playing fast and loose with, with adultery here. That's not the term that's being used here. The term is just... The, the, the general husband-wife laws that are in the Bible, and he's saying, be aware of those things. I want to make that point because I, some people have used this to say, see, God's okay with being fast and loose with all the rules regarding relationships, but that's not the case. It's not the case. That's not the word. It's not the context. The context is just asking the Gentiles to realize you're a lot looser, and you're coming into this with a completely different marriage paradigm. Please be sensitive to the Jews on this. Why? Because our freedom that we have in Christ is not a freedom to serve ourselves. It's a freedom to serve others. So he says, this is it. This is what we're asking you to do. We're not asking you to follow the law, but we are asking you to be sensitive to the consciences of the Jews. Very important. So look at verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together to deliver the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Obviously, this is good news, man. We're saved by grace through faith, and you're only asking us to show love and care for the brothers. That's great. This is an incredible thing. Then notice 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So Judas and Silas, they hang out. They're prophets. They're men who declare the word of God. That's their role. And you notice what it says, that they strengthened the brothers with many words. My translation that I like to translate is they preached really long sermons. <laughs> they, they were like, we're going to make sure you understand this. We're going to unpack this thing so you get it. Why? This is the most important truth because God was taking two people who were enemies and forming them into one body. That's a very important thing. This is Ephesians 3 says, Paul says that the angels are watching God take 
the Jews and the Gentiles, and forming them into one body, and they're giving worship to God because these enemies are becoming one. Powerful, powerful thing. So these guys are explaining this, and they spent time there, and they taught them and taught them. It's incredible. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, I want you to find verse 34. Can you find it in your English Standard Version? No, it does not exist. Okay? You notice that verse 34 is missing from your Bible. You have been ripped off. We have to protest this. No. Take them back to Crossway. We're taking a trip to Wheaton. You've lost a verse of the Bible. Okay. But you notice it's not there. There's a reason why it's not there. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you have a verse 34. But it's probably in brackets. And here's the reason why. Verse 34 probably wasn't in the original manuscripts. So you say, what, what, what does all this mean? Let me kind of, I need to explain this to you because occasionally verses are missing in the Bible. And when you come across, and this will happen from time to time, a verse being missing, so you need to understand why the verse isn't there. When we were putting together our English version of the Bible back in the 1500s, there was a group of manuscripts that they had of the Old and the New Testament. They had a completed form of the Old Testament, and they had an incomplete form of the New Testament. They didn't have all the books of the Bible. They hadn't found all the original manuscripts yet. And so what they did is they, they, they had some you know, Greek manuscripts. They had a lot of Latin manuscripts. And so they weren't working with a real pure source, but they did put together an English version, right? our King James Version. And so there it is now. We have this, this King James Version of the Bible. And then they started numbering the verses so people could find their way. And for a good 300 years or so, that was what we had. And then different translations kind of came out of those manuscripts. In the 1800s, archaeologists are digging around, and they find a boatload of older manuscripts. Older manuscripts that they didn't have when they put the King James together. Older manuscripts than, than they'd ever found before. It turned out that a bunch of Irish people went in and took all the manuscripts out of Rome when the Roman Empire was collapsing, and they buried them in caves in Ireland pretty amazing and so they find these manuscripts and they go oh my this is like a gold mine and they began to wade through these older manuscripts and and then discovered wow we got a few extra verses in our english bible okay well now it's hard because you've got like thousands of millions of bibles out there in english with some of these verses and so what they would do from time to time and as they were kind of updating the bible and, and getting it a little more closer to the older versions is that, like in the New American Standard, they would bracket something, and then they would say, this probably wasn't in the original manuscript. So like the book of Mark, whole section at the end of the book of Mark that in some of your Bibles is just bracketed and said, this probably wasn't in the original, because as they found these older manuscripts, they started writing that out. English Standard Version just decides, hey, let's just drop some of them. Let's not even put some of the notes in them at all. Like some in the study Bible, they might have, you know, some have verse 34. In, in one version of an English Standard Version I have, this is just, it goes from 33 to 35. Okay, and so, and so, but that's why it's there. But if you notice verse 34, it's a really inconsequential line. Here it is. I'll give it to you so that you don't feel lost if you don't have it in your Bible. It says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. There it is. And most of those verses that were the extra verses are lines like that. No new doctrines being introduced, you know, or, or being left out or anything like that. They're generally just little descriptive statements that probably scribes put in the side of the notes to uh, kind of fill in some, some areas to help people understand it. 
So there you've got there. So now we're in 35, back to 35 then. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So now remember, they were sent from Antioch, uh, released out in the ministry from Antioch. They're back because this is their church. And now that their first mission is done, they're back at their church and they're teaching and they're preaching. They're using their gifts. They're building up the body there in Antioch because that's the relationship they had. It's a beautiful relationship where they've released them. They've come back. They're going to release them. They're going to come back. This thing's going to be a great relationship. And notice what they're doing. They're preaching and teaching the word of the Lord. They want to build people up so they understand these truths. Um, you know, doing their role of equipping the church. Okay, now, a little history needs to be inserted here. What we can ascertain from the way the Bible unfolds is that these guys that came from Jerusalem, they first went up to Antioch, and they started doing their bad teaching in Antioch. And then you know what they did? They weren't done. After the whole council happened, these guys made their way from Antioch, and they went to all of the cities that Paul went on his first missionary journey to. And they started following Paul's path, going to all of the cities and telling the people, hey, listen, what Paul told you is incomplete. It is true that Jesus died for you, but you have to follow the law. And so now they start going through, and what had happened in Galatia was the people, now that whole region that Paul went to, all the different cities that he went to, we just call that region Galatia. It's not one city. Galatia is a whole region, southern Turkey. And all the churches that were started there, these teachers started going around behind Paul's back and telling them they were wrong. Paul gets wind of this. And so what he does is he writes a letter to the Galatians helping them understand what happened at this council. So flip over to Galatians. Flip over to Galatians 3. As you're flipping there, kind of explain something to you here. In Galatians 2, Paul even references the situation at Antioch and references that, that Peter was wrong because these guys apparently were going through and even saying, hey, listen, Peter and Barnabas are on our side. And there's all these things, and it, and it appears as if Paul is saying, listen, Peter was wrong. I confronted him. This is, you know, and he's correcting the record. And what he's doing is he's taking the lesson from the Jerusalem Council, and applying it to this church. And there's three main kind of structural thoughts to Paul's argument. And I want to give you these three things because they really do represent the application of the letter and the application of this. And these three things are really important. Okay? And so in Galatians 3, he gives the first point. And the first point he wants everybody to understand is that you're justified by faith, not by works. Now notice how he speaks to the Galatians in Galatians 3, look at verse 1. He says, oh foolish Galatians, right? He is like, could you imagine a, a letter? Like, could you imagine me gone somewhere and then I write you a letter back? Oh foolish Kishwaukee Bible Church people, right? He's just, you know, calling somebody fool's a big deal, right? He's not just throwing an insult out. He's saying, you guys, what have you done how in the world could you believe this, right? He's livid. Notice, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Who's deceived you, right? It's, he is, you know, upset. And then he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as, it, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? What's he saying? He said, guys, you got tricked. Now remember, we studied Paul's journey. When he went there, remember, he was like attacked. There are people trying to kill him. At one point, they had stoned him and left him for dead. And the people of one of the cities went out there and, and, and saw him and was standing over him. Then he comes back and they bring him back into the city. These guys have watched Paul put his life on the line preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He's your only sacrifice. This is it. He's like, I like literally almost died to get you this message. And then you are going to believe these guys? Right? He's just, and then he says, think about this. When the Spirit of God came upon you, was it because you did some magical work? You trusted and the Spirit came upon you. So what? Now you're going to manage this by works? What, you think the Spirit needs help? And then he says, okay, you want to be following the Old Testament. What about Abraham? When was he called righteous? He was called righteous long before there was even a law. He believed God, and boom, he was righteous. Okay, so here's his point. This is the main point. We're justified by faith. Why are we justified by faith? Because the wages of sin is death. If the wages of sin was good works, then the law would save you. But God didn't say that the wages of sin was good works. The wages of sin is death. Christ died in your place. You trust in that death. And the good news is you can be made righteous. God will forgive God will give you righteousness, right? So what's he doing? He is reasserting the entire reality that we're not, we can't add the law to this. It is by faith, period. That's it. Okay, that's his first point. We've preached that. We've been through that point. So now we move to the second point that he gives them. And again, he's applying the letter, applying the theology of the Jerusalem Council. And the second point he gives is that justification is a relationship between God and between man, meaning what? We have a relationship, that point probably isn't clear. We not only have a relationship with God, we also brought into a relationship with others. Right? We're not just saved as individuals and we remain as individuals and we just do what makes us happy. We're brought into relationship with others. And so notice what he says in Galatians 5. Just flip over to chapter 5. Chapter 3 is where the entire theology of by faith is unfolded. If you really want to understand it, there it is. By the time we get to chapter 5, he's dealing with our relationships with others. And what does he say? In verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Now, what you have to remember is that when sin came in, it broke our relationship with God and it broke our relationships with others. And so when Christ saves us, he restores our relationship with God, so now we can love God. And he restores our relationship with others, now we can love others. And if you look at all the laws, you can break them up 
into two categories, laws that help us love God or laws that address our relationship with God and laws that have us deal with our relationship with others. And if you want to fulfill all of the laws in relationship to others, you do it through love, is what he's saying. This is how you fulfill it. So he's not saying we're doing away with the Old Testament. We're carrying out the intent of the Old Testament. The intent of the Old Testament wasn't that the new heavens and the new earth like, that would all of a sudden come in and there would be all of a sudden all of these rules and sacrifices and, and all of this stuff, right? The, the goal of heaven is not to have a temple where you and I are constantly washing our hands and, and eating certain foods and doing certain things and that all of eternity is going to be managed by rules. The point of heaven is that we're going to be in a relationship where we love God fully and we love each other fully and we're in this great giant place where love is flowing upward and outward. And he's saying this is what Christ has done. And so when he frees me by his grace, he doesn't free me to sin. Grace is not a a call to sin to say go do what you want. Grace is a call to serve. Now I'm in relationship with you. And now I serve you, and this is what he's saying. And this is why if I serve you and I recognize this, then I will fulfill the whole law. And that's that application. This is why he's telling them, hey, listen, I want you to be sensitive to the consciences of the the Jews because you're called to love them. Okay, now, those are not new points. We've preached those points. We've been through those. But there's one added piece that Paul gives here that I think is really important in Galatians that I want to point out to you. And it's this. I don't think in this room here, you're going to have people who are going to say, oh, we're saved by works. I don't think there's many people in this room that are sitting there going, no, Steve, we are saved by works. Right? I don't don't think that would be the case. And I don't even think there's people in the room here who would be saying, no, Steve, we're not called to love other people. That's crazy. I don't think anybody of you are sitting here. So you're sitting there going, I agree with you, Steve. I agree with you, Steve. So then where's the problem come in for the Christian when it comes to the law? The problem with the law sometimes is with ourselves. Because sometimes we don't trust ourselves. And so sometimes we might say, you know, maybe I don't trust myself and maybe I don't trust my, my kids. Sorry, guys. Maybe I don't trust my kids. And so what i got to do is I'm going to add a little bit of law here. Because uh, if I don't, you know, things could get really bad. Because i got to manage my walk with God and I know my heart is deceptively wicked and, and therefore... And I, if my heart's wicked, I know my kids' hearts are wicked. So what I've got to do is kind of maybe put some laws down to kind of keep order. And this is where sometimes the problem can come in. Because the reality is, does law make you holy? And if it doesn't make you holy, then what do you do? Because you do know that in your own heart, you're easily led astray. If I give you a billion dollars in your own island... Would you use it for the kingdom? Right? If I say, hey, here's your own island you can live on with your own beautiful home and all the money you could ever want, all the servants you could ever want, what would your flesh do with that? You'd probably say, hi, I could become really lazy really quick. So I would need some kind of law to govern me, to help me not be that way. Paul addresses this. And what he wants people to realize is that we're not even going to add law in when it comes to your own weaknesses. But then what are you adding? Right? Because this feels a little risky. This is his third point. Justification is maintained by the Spirit. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. Galatians. This is where I love where Paul takes the teaching of Acts 15 and he begins to flesh it out for them. 
And he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And there it is. Walk by the Spirit. What does walk by the Spirit mean? Well, what does the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit, we know the Spirit has come to convict us of sin, to convict us of righteousness, to convict us of judgment, to convict us about the person of Christ, to, 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 to be that conscience in your mind. And walking by the Spirit means that we're not, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, quenching it, where we're, we're introducing other voices that would push against the Spirit, but instead we're remaining sensitive to it because if we do, as he says in Galatians 5, we actually... Can, can allow and see the actual fruit of the Spirit emerging. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control, all of that can come out. So you say, well, what, what is it? But he says, if you, if you don't, if you're not walking by the Spirit, you will gratify the, the flesh. And, and then he lists out in Galatians 5 what the flesh is. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery. He starts going through this whole big graphic list there. So, well, what does it mean? How do you actually do that? Let me kind of explain this to you. Because I think this, is, this will help. Because what, what we want to do, and what I'm really trying to do in my life, in the lives of my children, in the lives of you guys in the church, is to say, listen, I want you to be sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life. And when there is a conviction of sin going on, when something begins to bother your conscience, there are three responses you can have when that happens. One response is that you could justify the sin when it comes your way. So maybe you're responding incorrectly to something. And suddenly there's this thing in the back of your brain saying, hey, you're responding incorrectly to this. And then your first thought is, well, it's their fault. If they hadn't done such and such, then I wouldn't. Right? If my boss hadn't done such and such, then I wouldn't have done such. And such. Or if this hadn't happened to me, then I wouldn't be in this situation. And then I, right? If I hadn't had this problem, then blah 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 blah. If I hadn't had these parents, right, right, whatever it is, I can just kind of go down the list and say, here's the reason why what I'm doing isn't as bad as it might appear because of these reasons. When you're doing that, you're not walking by the Spirit. You're justifying this. There's a second response you can have. You could just ignore it. Just move on. Netflix it, right? The answer to everything. Turn on Netflix. Binge watch a whole season of something, right? You feel that, 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 that element of the Spirit coming on and convicting you, and, and you can, at that moment, ignore it if you wanted to. Or the third response is you can confess it. You could deal with it. Call the sin what God calls it and move forward. And that is what is called walking in the Spirit. Spirit's at work in people's lives. And the prayer of, of life is to say, God, let them be responsive to your Spirit. The prayer isn't anything other than that. Because he's saying, walk by the Spirit, and you will not. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, what God has done is he's given us his spirit to actually manage our lives. And the real question comes down to when I look at my life is not whether or not I'm following a law or a rule to manage my life. The question is what happens when my conscience is bothered by something? 
What happens when that thing is kind of clicking in my brain saying, eh, you probably shouldn't do that. Do I say, well, if Heather had only done this, then I would have done that, right? If, if, if that was, I might be justifying it. I could be ignoring it. I could just say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this right now. I'm going to watch some TV. Or I could just, okay, Spirit, you're showing me something. I want to walk in harmony to what you're convicting me of. And the fruit of that, the fruit of that becomes love and joy and peace and gentleness. And one of the ways that I can look at my own life is to ask myself when I read through the list of things here, and this is just a personal question. I don't ask this for you guys. I can't evaluate your heart. But I can evaluate my own heart and say, do I see fits of anger and dissension and division and envy and drunkenness and all of these things starting to emerge in my life? Then it's possible I have hardened my conscience to the leading of the Spirit. Or do I see gentleness and self-control and love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness, fruitfulness emerging, then, then, then probably I am listening to that spirit. But that's what he's given us to manage it. Now, I wanted to point this out to you because I wanted to show you that the book of Galatians is the practical application of what happened in Acts 15. And one of the things I would encourage you to do that I think you will find really rewarding this week is to read through all of Acts 15, okay? And then read through the book of Galatians. You can do this. And then go back and read through Acts 15 again. And I believe when you see all of those things merge together, you're going to see things popping out of these books. And you'll see what's going on in the heartbeat of this. And I believe that it will genuinely stir you. So, what are some takeaways? Let me just give you a few things that I wrote down. Some takeaways here. I got four of them, four takeaways from this passage, and then we'll pray together. The first takeaway that I have is that, that we can worship God. That's the first takeaway. The reason why I want to say this and why this is important is because these truths are really about worship. God has saved us. He has done this work for us so that he would get the glory, and he didn't do this work so that we could ignore it. Right? He didn't do that. He did this work so that, that he would be glorified and worshipped and that, that he would receive all honor. And, and as we think through the fact that we're saved by faith and we're called to be in relationship with others and God can unify enemies and, and all of this, that, that God should get the worship. And this should fuel our singing. This should fuel our praise. It should fuel all of this. Second thing that I want you to notice is that this allows us we, to be able to walk holy. We can walk holy. You know, you realize this, and I've said this before, and I want to keep saying it as much as I can. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your parents. And you're not defined by all the sins that you have committed or all the things you're ashamed of. You can be defined by Christ and His righteousness. He gives that to you by faith. He gives this to you so that, that you can be changed that he sends his spirit to convict you of sin, not to beat you up, but to allow that fruit of the spirit to flow through you. To push out the deeds of the flesh and to see the fruit of the spirit emerge. This is his gift to you. This is good news. Great news. Third, we can witness about God by our love for others. We now can actually say, listen, God has loved us and, and that's why I want to love others. And so, I can recognize that if I'm with somebody who's 
whose conscience is sensitive to something, that we can honor that conscience. Somebody might say, well, you don't have to honor that conscience. No, but I, I get to, and I want to, because that's what God's done for us. He took on the form of a man and took on the form of a sinner and then took my sin upon himself to serve me. I can then set aside any freedoms I might have to serve others, and that's the gospel. This is why relationships are important. This is why church is important. And then the fourth thing that I want to say is that we can relax. We can relax. What do I mean by that? One of the things that, you, that, that, that can easily create anxiety for us in, in relationships with people is, uh, is sometimes uh, what is going on in their life or their heart or whatever. But if they're in Christ, they have the Spirit. And so we can relax. We can relax. We can pray for our children. We can pray for relatives. We can pray for those situations. And we can say, God, your Spirit's at work. Your Spirit is more powerful than any words I could ever give. So, God, I'm just praying that their hearts would be open and that you would do a work in their life and, and I can relax. And especially the anxiety when it comes with, you know, children or, or family members that are struggling and, 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 and just recognize God's Spirit is more powerful than anything. And we can relax and trust that Spirit. And what I want to do is relax and, and be sensitive to God's Spirit in my life and pray for you that you would be sensitive to God's Spirit in your life and relax in that process. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this great book, your Bible, that it fits together, that these teachings are not abstract. But Lord, they're, they're profound and powerful. Thank you for Christ that he took our punishment Thank you that you can change our hearts to cause us to show love to others. Thank you, God, that your spirit is at work in us. Lord, may we be sensitive to that leading. Lord, may we understand not just what happened in Acts 15, but the truth that the, that the elders and the apostles proclaimed. That truth isn't just something for that moment in time, but that truth was to extend to us to the end of the age. God, may we embrace this and, and understand it, Lord. May the book of Galatians become even that much more precious to us as we understand the, what you're trying to accomplish in having these words written. Lord, may it cause us to worship you and walk holy and proclaim your gospel and to relax in your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.